You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Well, once again, good morning. Glad to have you here with us. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. That's where we're going to start this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, and uh, I'll try and uh, sort of uh, insert my announcements and things that I want to chat with in addition to our study through the Word um, about uh, at different points here. So as you're doing that, as you're getting your way to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, uh, we are entering into a season that is historically known in the church as the season of Lent. Which, for a lot of us from Protestant evangelical traditions, it hasn't been a big part of our experience, this season of Lent, which is uh, the 40 days leading up to the celebration of Resurrection Sunday, Good Friday, the death of Jesus, his crucifixion, Holy Saturday, and then uh, Resurrection Sunday. Um, we're big on Easter, obviously. That's, that's man, that's the, the beginning point of the foundation of our faith is, is to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, but the season of Lent traditionally and historically within the church has been an important part of the devotion of the believer in Jesus Christ. And it's a time of self-reflection and a time of traditionally um, fasting and prayer in such a way, 40 days, what does that remind you of perhaps? Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness as he went out and the devil tempted him and he fasted and sought the Lord there prior to the beginning of his ministry here on earth. Um, there's a parallel there that I think is really important for us to consider. And so if Lent has not been a thing for you in your tradition, I would just ask you to consider it. And, and for the purpose of saying, um, man, the Lord instructs us, he doesn't say if you fast, he says, when you fast, um, if that's not a normal part of your devotional life is cutting something out of your life so that you could, instead of doing that thing, whether it's a food, a drink, an activity, a behavior, whatever it is, cutting that out. And instead of doing that, focusing that time on prayer and seeking out the Lord, if you've never done that, I would recommend that you look into that and, and pursue that even. And so um, that's something that we're entering into. And, and again, I say historically, this is stuff that the church has done from the beginning of the church until the present age, um, even if it hasn't been a part of your tradition. So I welcome you to consider that as well. Well, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 14 through 18 is what we're going to be looking at this morning. Last week, I made the point that in truth, if we all get down to an honest place, we all want our life to mean something. At the end of our days, we all want our life to, to have purpose and to have meaning, or at the very least, we should desire that our life has purpose and meaning because the reality that we have to come face to face with, according to scripture, is that we are all going to stand before Jesus and give an answer for our lives. We are going to be judged for our lives, the things we have done or not done that we should have. Now, just as a, as a recap, if you didn't catch that teaching, when we stand before the Lord in judgment of eternal salvation, we have every confidence because of Jesus' death and resurrection that we will be with the Lord for eternity. 
That's not our fear. That's not the judgment that we as followers of Jesus are fearful of, the great white throne judgment. We're confident in Christ at that judgment. But the scripture says that we all, as believers in Jesus, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and have all of our works judged by Christ. Now, that is something that, again, is not talked about enough in the church. And oftentimes what happens is that we sort of build into our brains or have had fed to us that the only thing that matters is that I prayed a prayer once is that I'm going to heaven regardless of whether I smell smoke following me or not, right? That's been the traditional thought in our brain. Hey, I'm saved by grace, and that's all that matters. And what happens, even though we may not say it out loud, but when we sort of practice that uh, philosophy in our faith, I'm saved by grace, I'm saved by grace. What traditionally follows in our brain is... So that means I can pretty much do whatever I want without penalty because, you know, Jesus, I get to just, yeah, I'm forgiven and Jesus is going to stand up for me at the great white throne. That's true. But I'll repeat this phrase that I've already used several times and perhaps this is something for us as God's church to be focusing on in this season of time. Here's the reality. You can have a saved soul and still have a wasted life. I'll say it again. You can have a saved soul and still have a wasted life. Here's where I've come to at this point in my life. I don't want a wasted life. I want my life to mean something and not mean something from the perspective of he was successful in his business and he raised a great family and, oh, he was a nice guy and, oh, he lit up the room when he, when he walked into the room and all these platitudes that we offer to people, uh, you know, for comfort when someone's passed on. I, I, I don't, I'm not concerned with those things. They're a part of a good life. They're a part of a meaningful life. But I truly don't want to live a wasted life in such a way that when I stand before Jesus, I have to look back over my life as he's judging everything I've ever done, seeing whether the intent of it was good in my heart or if it was selfish or meaningless. I want to be able to stand before Jesus and go, actually, the thing that was most important to me, the thing that I strove for, the thing that I was concerned with in raising my family, in working my job, in being a good neighbor, all of those things, the thing that I wanted more than anything was to make sure that, Jesus, you were known in my life. I don't want to live a wasted life. How, how do we make sure that we don't live a wasted life? That's our premise this morning. How do I make sure? As we've pointed out recently in our study through 2 Corinthians, Paul gives us an example that perhaps is a good starting point for us to make sure that we're not living a wasted life. Paul, in his speech, as he talks to the church, frequently peppers his language with Scripture. Paul is constantly in his talking to and teaching and exhortation of the church is quoting scripture over and over and over again. That's one of the first ways that we can start to make sure that our life means something is that we are are wrapping our heart and our mind and our life around God's holy scripture. 
that we're hearing and seeing what God wants us to know through his word and then just living in that truth, living in that light that he gives us through his word. That's a starting point. We should be scriptural people in our pursuit and desire for holiness. Well, like I said, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, and what we're going to see Paul do here is he's going to quote some more scripture for us, and that, like I said, is a good starting point for us to understand how to make our life worth something in the end. Paul gives this instruction to the church in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said... And here Paul begins to quote the Old Testament. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Bless you. Here's what's really, really interesting as we look through God's word. Again, we've, we've been trained and, and taught so much that we just sort of have possession of everything that God wants to give us because of Jesus' sacrifice. Here's how I would qualify that. I would say we have the potential to possess everything that God has planned for us because of Jesus Christ. But throughout the scripture, what we see over and over and over again are conditional commandments that God gives to his people. He says, if you will do this thing, then this will, good thing will happen. But if you do this disobedient, negative, sinful thing, here's the consequence of that action. Understand that God in his holiness, God in his perfection, does not look over sin. That's one of the things we have to be uh, truthful about and, and understand in our devotion to the Lord is that God doesn't just wink at sin and go, oh yeah, I saw you kind of slip up over there, but remember, Jesus Right? That's, that is not the context of our relationship to God who is holy and righteous above all. Our desire should be to become more like Jesus in his holiness, in his obedience to the Father. Now, it's important for us to see that Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, and I'll give you the reference in just a second, but Paul is quoting Old Testament commandments from God to God's people, the nation of Israel. And Paul is quoting that and applying that commandment and truth to the church in Jesus Christ. That's an important connection. That's an important parallel that we need to see and understand that, that, that by doing that, Paul is teaching us that what, that, that, that what the scripture says about God, 
that he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Paul is proving that point by quoting the Old Testament and applying it to New Testament believers in Jesus Christ. This is an important point to understand even hermeneutically in the sense of how we interpret scripture, how we read the Bible and understand what it says and what it means to us. The Bible cannot mean something to us today that it didn't mean when it was written. You tracking with me? Just because it's 2021... Just because we have technology today that they didn't have back in ancient days, just because, quote-unquote, culture has developed and evolved in such a way that we have knowledge of things scientifically and socially and biologically that they didn't back then, does not mean that we read or understand Scripture differently than how it was delivered at the time that it was written. Yeah, God's Word is unchanging. It stays the same. And this is important for us culturally because there are people who want to take scripture and twist it in such a way to fit the morals and ideals of the world in this present age. Anyone who takes scripture and tries to twist it in such a way that it doesn't mean what it meant when it was written is a heretic. They cannot justify using scripture to support something that God expressly forbids in his word. The plain reading of scripture is how we understand it. So when God says that behavior is sinful, and if you follow in the steps of that behavior, you're going to have consequences. Yes, God has grace for sinners. Yes, Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. But God's word never changes. What he calls sin, if we pursue sin... We're going to reap the, the, the consequences of sin. And what God calls righteous and holy, those who follow in those ways are going to reap the rewards of righteousness and holiness. It's important for us to understand that. So when Paul quotes the Old Testament as a point of instruction for the New Testament church, the Corinthians here, we in 2021 have to listen to it with ears that are looking for instruction and application of truth. So here's what I want to do. I want to show you um, the parallel between the Old Testament and the New Testament in how God commands his people regarding what Paul has just quoted. Again, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? You, you, we, the church, are the temple of the living God. And so Paul then applies what God said to his people in the nation of Israel to the church. Go out from their midst. Be separate from them. Who's the them? We know who the church is. We know who God's chosen people are. We know that the church is is parallel to Israel in understanding that God has chosen us to display his grace and his love and his mercy to the world around us. Who's the them that we're supposed to go out from? Non-believers. The world. Anytime we make reference to the world in scripture, it's typically the, the representation of the system of Sin that dominates the world. Go and do whatever makes you happy. As long as you're not hurting somebody else, you do you. That's the system of the world. 
rather than saying, I put to death my flesh spiritually and even physically I put to death the things in me that are sinful and I surrender authority of my life to Jesus' command. So that what Jesus says, I just do that. That's the, the way of the Lord and the kingdom of God versus the way of the world. And this is who God is calling his people historically and presently to be separate from. So here's the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Paul is quoting here Leviticus chapter 26. And mark that down for further study. It's a beautiful section of scripture. There's, there's some powerful statements that God makes in regard to his people being faithful to him and what he will do if his people are faithful to him. But I'll quote just this first part, Leviticus chapter 26, verse 3. God says to his people, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then, conditional, see how that works? If, then. If you, if you follow my stat, walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their seizing, season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees and the fields shall yield their fruit. And then God goes through for the next Oh, the rest of the chapter, really, and continues these conditional promises to his people that if you obey my commandments, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to bring, uh, I'm going to bring increase. I'm going to bring provision and blessing to you. But then he exhibits the converse, the opposite. He says, but if you do not follow my commandments, here's all the bad things that are going to happen. And that's something I think we have to be very real about and, and really honest with. That when we choose to sin, whatever that sin might be, yes, it's covered by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ so that eternally our life is redeemed to the Lord. But in the here and now and the moment that we stand before Jesus to answer for our actions and our works, as it were, every moment that we chose willfully, knowing that what we were doing is sin and we chose to sin anyway, it's dishonoring to the Lord. It's a rejection of his grace. And we're going to have to stand before Jesus and answer for that. It's going to affect our existence in eternity. I can't tell you exactly how in the negative sense, all, all that to say, we do know that Paul has already described that the things that we have done that are of the flesh, they're going to be tried by fire. Perhaps that's the fiery gaze of Jesus, as I've heard it explained before, as we stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ. But what Paul explicitly says is that anything that is wood, hay, and stubble, the things of this earth, material things, in that day of judgment before Christ, the earthly, worldly, fleshly stuff is all going to be burned away. And the only thing that's going to be left on our record are the things that are pure, gold and silver, the things that are eternal in nature. That's why you and I should have this burning desire to make sure that we are acting and living, thinking, behaving in such a way that we are honestly and earnestly heavenly-minded, kingdom-minded, Jesus-pursuing, so that what we do in our interactions, our conversations, our behaviors, everything that, that we partake in in our life here to the best of our ability, we're bending it, pushing it, strong-arming it into something that honors the Lord. 
So here we have Paul quoting Leviticus chapter 26, and what we see is God calling his people to obedience, to be obedient to his commandments. Now, I want you to mark down in the opposite end of the scripture, Revelation chapter 3. So here we have God at the beginning of the story, at the beginning of the narrative of redemption, talking to his people Israel, the nation of Israel, and saying, if you walk with me and obey my commandments, here's all the blessings that are going to happen to you. If you don't, here's all the curses and the things that are going to come upon you for your disobedience. That's Old Testament. That's Old Covenant. Now look at what God speaks through Jesus to his church in the New Covenant. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, speaking of Jesus. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it, and repent. This is Jesus speaking to his church. This is one of the churches in Asian Minor that, that God was speaking to through the vision that he gave the apostle John to send them instructions saying, listen, you're a church by name. You're followers of Jesus by name. You have the reputation or the image that you're alive that you're functioning in the way that you're supposed to, but Jesus says to them, you're actually dead. When I say I want my life to mean something, that I want it to be worth something in the end, I don't want to stand before Jesus and have him uh, ask me, so what did you do as a pastor to the church? Well, week by week, I prepared a study and sang some songs, and we had a room, and we met here, and, you know, we just, we tried to do good services. We tried to keep people, I tried to sing songs that people liked and wanted to, you know, sing, and I wanted them to take notes in their Bibles and stuff, so I tried my best. Listen, that's the appearance of life. That's the appearance of life. But within those behaviors, it's far too easy to allow ourselves to slip into complacency and even death. This is the warning of Jesus to the church. So what does he say? What's the, what's the condition here? Or what is the solution to this? Jesus saying, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. In verse 3, he says, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. We see in these two bookends of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, we see God calling his people to obedience to his commandments. We see Jesus calling the church to repentance of our deadness. Obedience to God, repentance to Jesus equals separation from the world. We're called to be separate. We're called to be different than how the world acts and looks and feels. Obedience to God, repentance in Christ equals separation from the world. How do I make my life mean something and be worth something at the end? By doing the things I've been taught, 
by practicing the things that I've seen in Scripture, that I see Jesus doing, that I see him entrusting his disciples with, that I see the apostles going out and pursuing, the people that I see in history, the church fathers and the saints throughout the ages who have willingly given their lives for the sake of the gospel, regardless of what the persecution was that they were being threatened with. I look to them and I say, that is the model for us today that we need to be about something. We need to meet, have our, our, our lives in Christ mean something. Now, when you hear me talk like this, of course, it can, you can get the sense of like, well, what great thing am I supposed to do? Lucian, you really sound like we're supposed to like go, you know, uh, charge the gates of hell. Well, yeah, I, I do believe that in our prayer life, in our obedience to scripture, in the way that we fulfill the things that God has placed in front of us. Remember how I said last week or, or two weeks ago, listen, some of the great things that God has called us to is to be faithful husbands and wives, is to be faithful parents who disciple their kids and, and teach their kids the truth of God's word. Some of the great things that God has called us to is to quietly move about in his grace, blessing people perhaps when they don't even know it, being a help to them, paying somebody's restaurant bill, paying for somebody's meal behind you at McDonald's. I mean, simple little things. But when the intent of your heart is to be a blessing to them and for God to get the glory for that, all of a sudden you can imagine standing before Christ and him saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You took what I taught you. You took the example that I gave you and you just laid your life out for me. No, you weren't Billy Graham standing on a stage with a microphone preaching to thousands and thousands of people, but you took what I gave you and you were faithful and obedient to that. That is a life that means something. That is a life that is worth something. And so in understanding this obedience to God and this repentance in Jesus, that doing those things equals what God calls his people to do, which is to be separate from the world, I want to highlight and show you just real briefly here three ways that God always calls his people to be separate from the world in. God calls his people to, be se to separate themselves from the world in these three ways. Take note of this. <clears throat> Number one, God calls his people to be separate from the world in our thoughts. How we process the information that we receive. God calls us to be separate from the world in our thoughts. Mark down 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll be there in a couple weeks studying it, but just mark it down for today's purposes and I'll read it to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 Verses 3 through 6, God calls us to be separate in our thoughts. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Paul gives us instructions that even when we're faced with arguments from the world, lofty ideas, lofty opinions that are raised in opposition to God, well, science says, 
And evolution says, and we've proven this fact, and, you know, listen, we understand that morally, socially, our lives have changed. And if someone wants to define themselves differently than, than how God created them, who's to say they can't? Lofty opinions that oppose the knowledge of God. Paul tells us that we take every thought captive to Christ. Well, society says someone could just do whatever they want. They're the master of their domain. It's their body. It's their opinion. It's their feelings. Shouldn't we just let them do whatever they want as long as they're not hurting anybody else? Well, if we take that thought, which may even seem reasonable, but we take that thought captive to Christ, what we're doing is saying, Jesus, how am I supposed to process that information? And when we look at, let's just say, gender dynamics, right? And people saying, I was born biologically a male, but I'm going to identify as a female or vice versa. Uh uh. To take that thought captive to Christ means no, God said that He made everything in His image and He made it good. He determined and purposed that if He made someone a man, they're supposed to be a man. And if He made someone a woman, they're supposed to be a woman regardless of their feelings. Feelings are so subjective. The truth of God's word is objective. It never changes. And so when Paul says we take every thought captive to Christ, it means that when we come into, when, we, when we're hearing things in society at large, we have to take that and compare it to what we know of the truth of God's word that has been revealed to us. And so we are to be separate. We are supposed to come out from among those in the world and think separately and differently. That's the first way that we're supposed to separate, separate ourselves from the world. The second way that we're supposed to separate ourselves from the world is in our affections. Our affections. Colossians chapter 3, if you will. Verses 1 and 2, mark that down, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. We are called to be separate from the world in our affections. Paul says in Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now, I want you to highlight that word mind. Stop and consider that word mind. The word mind, the full meaning of it in the original language, is actually an all-encompassing word that describes our feelings, our emotions, our thoughts. And so we could rightly translate it to say, direct, to say, set your affections on things above and not on things of the earth. Not just your mind, but everything that you feel in response to what you think. All the feels, all the emotions. That's what we turn towards heaven, towards the Lord. If you want your life to mean something, if you want to stand before Jesus with the confidence of saying, I did everything I could to point to you in my life, Look at verse 1 again, Colossians 3.1. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What's going on in heaven right now? What's going on in heaven right now? Worship. 
They're praising God. That's what's taking place in heaven right now. They're far more concerned and consumed with the glory of God rightfully addressed than anything else in the universe. That's why we've said time and time again, worship as we sing to the Lord, praise, those kinds of things, it's just practice for eternity. That's where we can begin to copy the things of heaven where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's how we turn our affections to him. We draw our affections from the things of the world where we define ourselves in regards to success or pleasure or fun by the things that the world has to offer and say, oh my goodness, the pleasure of my life right now is that I have 20 minutes to sit in prayer and be in fellowship with the Lord. I've got an hour this morning to sit and read my Bible and just hear from the Lord. I have Sunday mornings to come and be with God's people, Wednesday nights, whatever, whenever that time is that we would typically do something that would be a pursuit of the world, turn that, redeem that, claim that in such a way that we're using it to honor the Lord. Set our mind on things that are above and not on things of this earth. Set your affection on things that are above. So God calls his people to be separate from the world in our thoughts, in our affections, and number three, in our behaviors. Mark down Ephesians chapter five. Ephesians chapter five. I think in all of my Bible teaching and in all of the time that I've spent ministering to people and serving people, believe it or not, I think Ephesians chapter 5 has been the place that I have turned to and used in more uh, cases than any other in Scripture. Believe it or not, even, even in regard to um, the Gospels and, and the instruction of Jesus, Ephesians 5 is one of the most practical applications of the truth of our faith in Jesus than anywhere else in Scripture. I have a Bible where, one of my other Bibles, where literally like the print is coming off of Ephesians chapter 5 because I've turned there so many times. So Ephesians chapter 5, look at verse 6. God calls his people to be separate from the world in our behaviors. Ephesians 5, 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore... Do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret." But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes vis visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is." The will of God is that we would believe upon the one whom he sent, his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, to raise up from the grave, promising us eternal life. If we are found in Christ, this is what we are called to, 
to come out and be separate from the world, to not copy the world, to not even participate and partake in things of the world that we know we shouldn't be touching, we know we shouldn't be talking about, rather we should be exposing the light of Jesus to all of those things. And that's why he quotes, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You see the parallels? You see the connections? Repentance from our sin. Jesus calling the church to repentance. We look like we're alive, but a lot of times we're dead. We're not actually living a life that's worth anything. It's not going to amount to anything when we stand before Jesus. We need to be people that are considering the things of heaven, considering the things of Jesus Let that infiltrate our hearts, our minds, our actions, our thoughts, all those things so that we look at everything through the lens of God. I just want to glorify you. I want you to just be praised. I want you to receive glory. I want want the light of Jesus to come through me in every situation that I'm in. And again, trust me, I know how like passionate, crazy Sunday morning sermon this sounds. I get that. I get that it's Sunday, so he's probably going to go for it, right? Like he's probably going to make a point real strong. Listen, I talk like this all the time. This is just our conversations in general. You can ask my family. It's sort of ridiculous. But the heart of it, I I can't hide or or shirk it in the sense of pushing it aside and going, oh, moderate that a little bit. Maybe someone's going to be a little bit freaked out. No, this is what we're called to. This is, what this, this is the passion with which we need to read the scripture and seek the Lord and pray in God, how is it, what can I do? What have you called me to? Am I, with the things you've given me, am I being faithful to the things you've called me to? Am I approaching all of what I'm doing with a mind toward the kingdom and what Jesus is doing versus what the world is doing and my sinking out of pleasure in those things it's sort of tragic to have to talk about this but you know the lord calls us to be separate from the world in our behaviors one of the things that the world just absolutely brennan manning said this that one of the things that the world finds completely unbelievable are christians who declare their belief in jesus with their mouth and then go out and deny him with the actions of their lives. That's what an unbelieving world finds unbelievable. Listen, we know we're hypocrites in the sense of we have this standard of Jesus that we're shooting for. We know we're never going to get there this side of heaven, but we're shooting for it. So in that sense, we know we're hypocrites. But here's what the world cannot stand. When someone stands up in front of people, especially publicly, and declares God's glory and his goodness and the power of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins, and then has to go and find reports and investigations done that they were guilty of sexual abuse and constant sexual immorality in their life that happened to a man recently who passed away. Accusations came out after he died. He was, a, he was an apologist um, in a ministry here in the United States, and he's well-known. I don't have to besmudge his name or anything like that. But after he passed away, all these accusations came out of sexual immorality and impurity and just constant abuse, and, and a, a thorough investigation was done to the point where it was found that he was guilty of all of those things. Here's the thing. The words that he spoke, the truth that he proclaimed... It doesn't affect the truth. The truth is the truth. But here's what happens. All the people who are not Christians look at that and go, who cares what he talked about? 
He was a dirty, rotten sinner who was a hypocrite. And so no one's going to remember this apologist, this minister of the gospel, for the ministry that he conducted. No one's going to go back and watch his YouTube videos again or, uh, uh, you know, go and get the materials from his organization anymore. All they're going to know is that he was kind of a creep. And yeah, listen, we know it. We're, we're all hypocrites. We all fall short in sin. But the pursuit of our life, the way that we think, the way that we love things, the way that we act should be toward Jesus and not the things of the world. So that not only when we stand before Christ, we're justified in our actions and, and that we receive the good things that Jesus prepares for us in eternity, but that right here and right now, we can humbly say, I'm, I am a sinner and I seek God's forgiveness for, for my sins frequently, week by week, in fact. Because at our church, we take communion seriously and we come and examine our hearts week by week. But I know that even though I'm a sinner, man, I'm doing my best not to give in to the things of the world, to separate myself in how I think, in what I love, and how I act. When we talk about judgment, commandments, repentance, obedience, all of these kinds of themes throughout Scripture, it may feel a bit disconcerting or a little bit awkward for us because perhaps we've come from a tradition that all we ever did was talk about grace. All we ever did was talk about, hey, it's God's grace. Yep, we're sinners, we know it, but God's grace, Jesus, we're free. And so it may feel a little bit awkward or uncomfortable for, for someone to be sort of pounding this idea home that we actually do need to be concerned about our behavior and our thoughts and how we act. But I heard it said this week this way, God moves when we feel uncomfortable or awkward. That's just another way of saying what Paul tells the Corinthians later on, that God is strong in my weakness. In my weakness, that's where God proves himself to be strong and faithful. And so God moves when I am uncomfortable. God moves when I sort of feel awkward, like there's this weird tension of like, well, I sort of think this way because that's what I'm around every day at work or in my home life or at school or whatnot. And yet when I come to church and I'm around God's people or I get into his word, I, there's this shift that I go, oh, that's how I'm supposed to be thinking. That can be awkward. That can make you feel a little seasick even. But that's good because we want to get our sea legs, if you will, in Christ and his word, not in the things of the world. There's always great turmoil and persecution when God is ready to move in big ways. You can look at it throughout the word and throughout the history of, of the church that in great seasons of persecution and turmoil, you see the result of those things oftentimes as God moving in huge ways. I think that's why we see such big moves of the gospel right now in places like Iran and Iraq and in China, of course, the continuation of the gospel movement in China. It's because those people have been so beset by persecution. The Eastern Bloc nations that were, that were supporting EEM through in terms of getting the Bible to them, they lived under the rule of communism for how long? Multiple generations. And now that they're free of that, we see God moving in this huge way. 
powerful to understand that because if we're experiencing this turmoil in our life, if we're struggling with something or fighting something in our life going, that's the way that I've been thinking, the way that I've been feeling or acting, I can't do that. I need to be acting, thinking, and feeling this other way and it's sort of causing turmoil. Maybe it's disrupting relationships that we have. Maybe it's disrupting behaviors and activities and social relationships that I've had. But can I encourage you and tell you if you're experiencing that, boy, buckle up and get ready. God is ready to do something for you in terms of drawing you to himself and revealing himself to you in such a way that perhaps you've never experienced before. I'm hoping and I'm, I'm living in a sort of anticipation right now in my life when we talk about plans that we make, you know, which is a normal part of our discussion as a married couple, and we talk about the future, which everyone does and is, is right and good to do those things, I, I sort of have this, this moment of pause where I'm like, no, don't, don't make any plans yet. Uh, don't, don't make any big life-changing decisions right now. And I, and I think it's because I sense and feel this anticipation of, God, this last season has just sucked. It's just been horrible. COVID and 2020 and the persecution of the church and personal things that we've gone through and just go, Lord, it's just been so hard. I think I have this sense of anticipation that just says, Lord, you're about to do something powerful and mighty. You're moving in ways that perhaps we've not experienced before. And so all I know that is this, is that, is that I have this sort of antsy, anticipation and feeling of wanting more of the Lord. I want more of his word. I want more time in prayer. I want to experience more of his grace. I want more illumination where my mind starts to understand the things of God. I want more faith to believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want more just experiences of God's presence I won't tell you the artist who sings this song, which might imply something that is unfavorable to you, but I will repeat these lyrics. The lyric says, I'm a man with a one-track mind, so much to do in one lifetime, not a man for compromise and wares and wise and living lies. So I'm living it all and I'm giving it all. Yes, I want it all and I want it now. Here's the truth. I want Jesus. I want him all, and I want him now. I want my life to mean something. And so, let's pray and ask God to continue to reveal himself to us and how we are to be separate from the world, how we do that hard work of separating ourselves.